the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. In some way, God looks upon Christians just like we look upon the many parts of one body, many parts but one person. In some way, God looks upon the local church as many parts but one body. Paul explains the same thing. In 1 Corinthians, and in both of these passages, he draws the same application, that just as each part of the body has an important function, each Christian has an important gift. Just as each part of the body makes the body function well, and as a whole, each Christian's gift is meant to make the church function well, and as a whole, there are no superfluous body parts, and there are no superfluous Christians. When you are tempted, he writes, tempted to disassociate from the local church, whether permanently or semi-permanently, or even for a lazy Sunday where you just can't be bothered, you have forgotten what you bring to the people of your church. You have neglected to understand or believe that you, yes you, are a crucial part of the body of Christ. You have a gift to bring, and the church is only complete when you bring it and use it. And perhaps you know some who fail to grasp the importance of assembling as the body of Christ. Welcome once again to Verse by Verse, where we carefully explore the Bible with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. Someone once said, God has made you part of the body, and the body needs you to function well. When you neglect to meet with God's people, you deny them the gifts that He has given you. Well, maybe you've never considered that aspect of attending church. We will explore that and other topics relating to the unity and spiritual growth of us, the members of the body of Christ, on today's Verse by Verse. We will be in Ephesians chapter 4, so if you're able, please turn there as we dive into today's program with Reckless Abandon and also with Pastor Steve Kreloff. In an online article I recently read entitled, Why You May Be Tempted to Neglect Your Church, Christian blogger Tim Challies writes these words. And by the way, if you've never read Tim Challies, you really should. He's a Canadian Christian who I think has the largest following of any Christian blogger. So Tim Challies writes these words. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 say, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Then he writes, These verses warn Christians against leaving local church fellowships, as 
Christians, we all equally bear the responsibility to stir up one another to love and good works. We are to provoke one another to act in love, and we are to provoke one another to promote good works. And the simple fact is that we cannot do these things if we are not together. He continues, there are no superfluous body parts and there are no superfluous Christians. In the background of the book of Hebrews is the New Testament teaching that we as Christians are like a body, Christ's body. In Romans 12, Paul says, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. In some way, God looks upon Christians just like we look upon the many parts of one body. Many parts, but one person. In some way, God looks upon the local church as many parts, but one body. Paul explains the same thing in 1 Corinthians. And in both of these passages, he draws the same application. That just as each part of the body has an important function, each Christian has an important gift. Just as each part of the body makes the body function well, and as a whole, each Christian's gift is meant to make the church function well, and as a whole, there are no superfluous body parts, and there are no superfluous Christians. When you are tempted, he writes, tempted to disassociate from the local church, whether permanently or semi-permanently, or even for a lazy Sunday where you just can't be bothered, you have forgotten what you bring to the people of your church. You have neglected to understand or believe that you, yes you, are a crucial part of the body of Christ. You have a gift to bring, and the church is only complete when you bring it and use it. God has made you part of the body, and the body needs you to function well. When you neglect to meet with God's people, you deny them the gifts he has given you, gifts that bring him glory when you use them for the good of others. Now, that's a long quote, but I wanted you to hear that because what Tim Challies has written is really in keeping with what we've been studying in Ephesians chapter 4. I invite you to turn there. As you'll recall, Paul begins this chapter by stressing the unity and the oneness that we have, we who are part of the body of Christ. There is a oneness, there is a unity, we are family, we are one body, and therefore he speaks about the attitudes we need to treat one another properly, humility and patience and so forth. Then he balances this teaching about unity by introducing the truth about spiritual gifts. If you look at verse 7, this is introducing spiritual gifts. We've not heard this before. It's not been in the letter before until you get to chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, as we've already discovered, and I'll say it again, a spiritual gift is not a natural talent. A spiritual gift is a specific ability given by God to every Christian that enables that Christian to effectively serve the Lord for the express purpose of edifying his people. It is not a natural talent. It is a God-given ability. And the reason I say that the concept of spiritual gifts balances the truth about unity is because it teaches us that while the body of Christ is one and unified, There's also great diversity and great variety within the church. And the reason for this is because while we all have been gifted to serve Christ, no one has been given the exact same gift. And no one has the exact same measure of giftedness. We're all different in that sense. In other words, God has not designed his church to be characterized by a dull sameness. 
a drab monotony of people who are exactly alike, but rather the church has an assortment of unique individuals, and part of what makes them so unique is that they have all been given differing spiritual gifts. Even if you get the same gift as somebody else, it's mixed in with your personality. There's a different measure of gifts. There's a combination of gifts. Nobody has the exact same gift. Now, in verse 7, Paul states that spiritual gifts are given by Jesus Christ. You also read in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's the Holy Spirit who distributes it. So we would say that Jesus gives these gifts to his church by way of the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 8 through 10, which we looked at last week, we saw Paul explaining why Jesus is the only one qualified to give us these gifts. Verse 8, 9, and 10 say this. Therefore, it says, and it means Psalm 68. He's quoting from the Old Testament When he, and he's talking about Christ, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And now Paul explains. It's in parentheses. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now these verses explain Really, what Philippians 2 is talking about is the exaltation of Jesus as he ascended back to the Father now, not simply just as God, but as the God-man, the God-man who had been obedient, who had taken on the form of a bondservant and went to the cross. And now he's, having been at the cross and done the work of the cross, he is now the head of the church the head of all those who he won at the cross. See, the essential meaning of these verses is that at the end of Christ's ministry, having died on the cross for sinners, he defeated Satan. He defeated death. He defeated sin. Satan, death, sin, all those. They they had been holding these sinners captive, and in doing so now, Christ has freed them. He's won these sinners, as we would say, trophies of war, so that they now belong to him as his purchased possession, and were now part of his kingdom. And immediately upon returning to heaven, and I don't think what Paul is saying is that these people physically went back with him, but they're now part of his kingdom. He won them because as I told you last week, you look at Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended to the Father, he didn't take anybody back. He ascended himself. So it means that we're now part of his kingdom. I take it that this is all of God's people. And immediately upon returning to heaven, Jesus celebrated his victory over Satan, sin, and death by now giving gifts to his servants. And these gifts are the spiritual gifts that Christ distributes to every single Christian for the purpose now of serving him. But in addition to giving every Christian a spiritual gift, Paul tells us that Jesus blesses his church, watch this, by giving the church gifted men who will help the church, God's people, to grow spiritually. And it's in this sense, if you look at verse 10 again, it's in this sense that Paul concludes verse 10 by saying, so that he might fill all things. What does he mean here? What he means is that upon returning to heaven, Christ filled the entire universe with his blessings, especially the blessings he now bestows upon his church by giving them gifted men who can help them to grow spiritually. And that's why verse 11, folks, which we're going to begin to look at tonight, talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Because these are the gifted men 
that Christ has given to his church to bless her. Tonight, we want to begin, as I said, to look at these men. We want to learn who they are. We want to learn what their role is. We want to learn how they help us to grow spiritually. It's going to be a fascinating study as we get deeper into this. But tonight, I just want to introduce you to the first of this group of men that Paul speaks about, apostles. Let me read verse 11 again. And he gave some, Christ gave some, not all, as apostles. He gave some, not all, as prophets. He gave some, not all, as evangelists. And he gave some as pastors and teachers. Now, what we see from this statement by Paul is that not only has the Lord given, as I said, each individual Christian a spiritual gift. That's verse 7. But he has also given the church collectively gifted men. These men that are mentioned in this verse, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, are men who, like all believers, they have been gifted by Christ. But in addition, these men are also gifts by Christ to his entire church. So who are these gifted men? Well, as I said, we're only going to have time to mention the first one, but it's very important, as you'll see. Paul mentions first apostles. He gave some as apostles. So what or who is an apostle? Well, in the New Testament, the word apostle actually has three meanings. And one has to look at the context in which this word apostle is found in the New Testament to determine which meaning the writer had in mind. So, meaning number one, the verb form of this word actually means to send. The verb form means just to send. So, for example, in John 13, verse 16, Jesus used this word in the sense that it would refer to all Christians. In this sense, we're all apostles. Let me read it to you. John 13, verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Now, according to Jesus, every Christian is an apostle in this sense, in that we have been sent by Christ into the world to be his witnesses. So in that sense, we're all apostles. But obviously, this is not the way that Paul is using the term apostle here in Ephesians 4, because he's not referring to all Christians. He's referring to a select group of men known as apostles. In fact, he even says he gave some apostles, not all. Not all are apostles. So that's the first way this word is used. It simply means to send. The second way the word apostle is used in the New Testament is to speak of those who were official messengers of the various local churches. 2 Corinthians 8.23, I'm not sure how it translates in your English versions. In mine, here's what it says. I use the New American Standard Bible. It says this, as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers. This word messenger literally is apostle. They are apostles of the churches. And that's a key thought, of the churches. A glory to Christ. So these men were special leaders in the early church, and they were recognized as such. They were recognized as official messengers of the various churches. Another example of this in Romans 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So Paul is recognizing two men 
He says, they were in Christ, they were Christians before me, but he calls them apostles. Now, we don't call men apostles anymore. The modern day equivalent, it would seem to me, of these men and their function would be what we would call today's missionaries. I suppose we could call them apostles, but it would be rather confusing. A missionary is a special messenger of the church. He's been set apart by the Lord, and the church recognizes that. This church sends out a missionary, and they do all sorts of things. They have all kinds of ministries. They can plan churches. They can evangelize. They do special acts of service. So that's a way this is used. In fact, I knew a missionary who insisted that he was an apostle in this sense. It's somewhat splitting hairs what you call the person, but that's what he wanted to be known as. But that's how it's used, as an official messenger of the church. Now, the third way that the New Testament uses the word apostle is to speak of a small and very distinct group of men known as the apostles, not of the churches, but of Jesus Christ. I like the way John MacArthur puts it. He said, the apostles of Christ, that's a capital A. The apostles of the churches, that's a small a for apostle. They're known as the apostles of Christ because they were personally chosen by Christ and authorized by him to not only be his witnesses to the world, but also to give the church God's revelation by way of divine inspiration. They were a very special group of men. Now, it's a small group of men, 12 of them, including a man named Matthias, who was chosen in the first chapter of Acts to replace Judas, plus Paul himself. So there's really 13, plus Paul himself that the apostle here is referring to in Ephesians 4. Now, these men were most important in the early days of the church because they were foundational in the establishing and the building of the church in that they taught new revelation from God. What did they teach? Doctrine and theology about Christ. That's what the New Testament is really about. It's the doctrine and theology about Christ upon which the church is built. And in light of their authority, and they did have Christ's authority as inspired teachers of doctrine, it's important for you to know that there are no more apostles Today, not in this sense. If some missionary wants to call himself an apostle, I wouldn't necessarily argue, at least not argue much with that. But there are no more apostles today, and I want you to understand that because one of the qualifications for being an apostle of Christ is that an apostle had to have seen visually the Lord, the risen Christ. If he was going to be a witness of Christ's resurrection, then he had to have personally seen the risen Christ. And I'm not talking about a dream. I'm not talking about just a vision. He had to literally have seen him after he rose from the dead. Now, let me just give you some evidence of this in scripture, backing up of this statement. In Acts chapter 1, if you look there, starting at verse 21 and then 22. Now, the apostles had a problem. Judas obviously disqualified himself. This is a man who wasn't even saved. He betrayed Christ. He then took his own life. So now you're left with 11. They want another one. And I take it that they want another one because Jesus spoke about the 12 apostles in the millennial kingdom ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. So here's what we read. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 21. Therefore... It's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Now notice this. 
of the men who accompanied us. There were others, more than the twelve, who were with them from the very time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they said that the qualification is that we have to choose from among us one of the men who has been with us from the very beginning of John's baptism all the way to when Jesus ascended. So it had to be an eyewitness. And they did choose this man by the name of Matthias. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul mentions that he's a true apostle because he says, I've seen the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9.1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Paul said, one of the proofs that I'm an apostle is I've seen the Lord. And I'll explain that a little later, where Paul saw the Lord, because he was obviously wasn't there at the beginning of Christ's ministry. He wasn't a believer. 1 Corinthians 15.8. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about the appearances of Christ to the apostles, and eventually to 500. He speaks about an appearance to James, about an appearance to Peter. And then he says in verse 8, he said, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He's saying, I wasn't one of the 12. I was untimely born. I came later, but Jesus appeared to me also. Now you might wonder, when did Paul see Christ? Well, the first time he saw him, and there may have been other occasions, but the first time he saw him was on the road to Damascus. When the Lord appeared to him, it says, in a blinding light. Folks, that's the Shekinah glory. Jesus did appear to Paul. His unveiled Shekinah glory. Nobody else knew what was going on, but Paul knew. That's why he spoke to him. Who are you? Paul did see the risen Christ. And it may very well be that Paul also, as he was taught, he tells us in Galatians, he went into Arabia for three years. It may very well have been that the Lord appeared to him there. There may have been other times as well. He does say in Acts chapter 18, the Lord stood by me and told me this. But I think what he's referring to primarily is that at his conversion on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. So the scriptures teach that there can be no more apostles Today, apostles with a big A, the apostles of Christ, since there is no one today who has seen the risen, glorified Christ. I know there are bogus books and movies that speak about people seeing Christ. Not true. Peter said, whom having not seen, you love. Nobody's seen Christ today. That was one of the marks of an apostle. But understand that just because no one today can be a true apostle, that doesn't mean there aren't false apostles And there are false apostles, men who claim to be true apostles, but they are not. And I want you to understand this so that you are not naive and duped by these phony apostles. I remind you, for example, that in the days of the early church, there were men who claimed to be apostles, but they were false apostles. That's the background of 2 Corinthians. Paul has to defend his own apostleship because there were phony Jewish men, phony Jewish apostles who said they're the real deal and Paul is a phony. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Did you get that? They disguise themselves. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. A little bit later, in 2 Corinthians, Paul strikes another blow at these false apostles. This is fascinating, by saying that one of the marks of a true apostle is that certain signs and wonders and miracles accompanied their ministry that authenticated them as true apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. I remember, by the way, showing this to a seminary professor, and he's quite surprised, like he had never seen this in the Bible, but it's there, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. It's Paul saying, I'm a true apostle. These men are not. Our verse-by-verse program ended with a warning to be wary of those who call themselves apostles. Pastor Steve was just starting to talk about Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he warned them about false apostles. We will pick that up on our next verse-by-verse program. The series that we are in is titled Unity and Spiritual Growth, and I have appreciated the teaching we are receiving from Pastor Steve. His teaching is very thorough and completely based on the Bible. I feel as if I'd had a trip to an all-you-can-eat spiritual buffet. And we have more from that buffet tomorrow on Verse by Verse, so I hope you can join us then. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.